This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel M. Lavery. And with me in the studio this week is one of my favorites, Jack Doyle, an LGBTQ healthcare advocate, historian, and journalist originally hailing from New England. Jack, hello. Hey, how are you doing? I am just thrilled to have you here. Where are you hailing from at present? I am sitting in my bed in Oxford, England, and I am living my best quarantine life. It's so good to have you here. I actually really wish I could have had you here this morning because I had a question come in through the live chat that was very much in your wheelhouse. Was it gay? It was. It was. It was from an (laughs) older woman whose son came out a couple of years ago and she said she had struggled with it. And now her son is dating someone who is also HIV positive. And she was introduced to this guy over Zoom and she asked a bunch of like really personal, intrusive questions. Now her son is upset and is saying, if you can't let this go, we won't be talking for a while. And she was like, I need to not let this go. Oh my gosh. This is like really the the total coalescence of like COVID, gay drama, parents fumbling through Zoom relationships. This is, Mm -hmm. what did you say? Well, part of what was challenging was I was like, yeah, your son's absolutely going to stop talking to you if you don't let this go. You'll have no one to blame but yourself because you got a real clear advance warning here. Mm. Um, If you have genuine questions about like, treatments, you can talk to a doctor, but just because this man is living with HIV does not mean you get to ask him incredibly intrusive personal questions. Like, what if the two of you have kids and you get a cut on your hand? Like, it was that level of, like, HIV fear-mongering. Woof. Okay. And I think part of what was challenging, too, is that some of the responses coming in were like, how can you be so cruel to her? She's afraid. We're all afraid right now living a pandemic. And kind of going into that sort of, like, if someone's afraid that's natural and understandable and shouldn't be questioned. And if Mm. fear happens to lead people to retrench, to become suspicious, to punish others, to attempt to put people into categories of safe or unsafe, Mm. then that's not like homophobic or bad or racist or anything we can do anything about. You just have to accept that fear is natural. And when people attempt to curtail the freedoms or the rights or the privileges of other people as a result of fear, that's okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think looking at some of these questions and and thinking about just the advice I'm trying to give to friends and stuff at the moment, I really feel like we have not yet found the balance of uh, giving advice and sort of finding that sort of medium about how you relegate and deal with your emotions and relationships during COVID. Uh, And I think this that speaks to it pretty well because I think you you drew the right line there. And yet I'm not surprised that some people were in, you know, we're, we all have the right to be afraid mode. Um, so maybe we can do something productive with that. I don't know. Yeah, I hope so. Because I also think there's, yeah, there's a real way in which fear can turn into pretty quickly a desire to create a safe kind of person and an unsafe kind of person to create yes. an us versus them complex um, and to attempt to punish, surveil, and, and crush uh, the people you're afraid of. And that is, I think, bad. So, um, yeah, I think that's a good way to kind of open the show with sort of just where we're at. The thing that's on my mind right now, the thing I'm sort of most concerned about right now is definitely uh, maladaptive and, and uncompassionate responses to fear. So to that end, would you yes. please read our first letter? I would love to, Yes. The subject is incorrectly outed. Dear Prudence, my ex-husband and I were raised fundamentalist Christian. I married him at a very young age because of church and family pressure. It was miserable and lasted only two years. He was abusive. Sex was torture. I found out that he had lied to me about an arrest on his record. He told me it was for petty theft. I found out he'd sexually assaulted a girl. Later, 
Four other girls told me he'd sexually coerced them, and I left. I was sick knowing I had shared a bed with someone who hurt these girls. Now, here's the bad. I told him in secret that I was bisexual during our courting phase. He seemed supportive. He seemed supportive enough while we were married, even though he told me I was going to hell if I acted on it. When people ask him why I left him, he has been telling everyone it's because I'm a lesbian and I left him for my baby nephew's nanny. I'm not a lesbian. It would be fine if I were, but I'm not. By a rare twist, a whole year after my marriage was legally dissolved, I started dating and fell in love with Katie, my now three-year-old nephew's nanny. I'm scared to come out because everyone will think he was right. It's not fair that people don't know the truth and that I left him because he hid from me that he was accused of sexual assault by five women, two of them underage. I love Kate and I want to tell the world, but I can't get over my church thinking his crew was right. I'm also, and less importantly, so annoyed by the bi erasure. I still like men and him being a man was totally unrelated to why I left. What should I do? Whew. Yeah. So this one, I think, it's not exactly that I think the letter writer is focusing on the wrong thing, mm. but it it does seem like they're kind of hyper fixated on this one small relative to the other things issue. Yes. Um, if that makes sense. hundred percent. Like, yes. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, my first impulse is, is to be, I, I feel so much empathy for this person who, you know, I think maybe has not, recognized her her own place in in his sort of scope of abuse uh yeah. you know fully and you know i i want to try to give her permission to you know consider herself one of the people that that this man abused and to you know think about what what help she's getting for that and what help she thinks she needs with that um right there was there was that sort of like Yes, he was abusive, sex was torture, but then there's this other category of girls he hurt, and I'm not one of them. And yeah, I agree. I think there was just that moment of like, I think you absolutely are one of the girls that he assaulted yeah. um, and, and, and harmed. So there, there's, yeah, there, obviously the letter writer seems aware that he was abusive towards her, but there seemed like a kind of attempt to say like, but I, I'm, I'm not really one of the victims because of the fact that we were married, because of the fact that the church countenanced our relationship when total agreement, um, you yes. are every bit as much a victim of this guy as they were. Yes, absolutely. And I think that the coming out actually is separate to that and should be separate from that. Um, I, I, I understand why these thoughts are, are crossed in the letter writer's head, but I would really encourage her to... Um, you know, in terms of disclosing some of this really personal stuff, not feel that she has to um, sort of come out to to prove that he was abusive, or you know, like to to basically feel that there's there's different processes involved in in disclosing his abuse versus disclosing your own sexuality and relationship. Um, not least because you know one is a really hard and fraught thing, and the other ideally should be something that you're doing to be celebratory and to open up your life to your, to your family um, and your friends. Um, so I, I would want her to come out on her own terms more if possible. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the, the thing here it, that is painful, but also just true is your abuser, which is, I think, one way of referring to your ex-husband, is going to lie about you. you. You can't trust him to tell the truth about you. That is, I think, a given. And uh, so accepting that as one of the realities of your life will, I think, free you up from some of this fear, which is just that he's going to tell lies about me. I know he is a liar because he is also uh, an abuser and a rapist and a monster. Like he is um, a definitively bad person. So when you kind of free yourself from the even even sort of subconscious belief that maybe um, if I had gotten out my story a little bit sooner or if I could have clarified with enough people what bisexuality is, they wouldn't have believed him. When I think the real issue is simply, I have a lot of people in my life who I fear will believe an abusive rapist over a bisexual woman. Yeah, 100%. And so that's the real issue, I think, is, is the, that's the fear of the church, right? Like... Um, and so I think, again, not that you are obligated to call up anyone you're not in regular contact with and tell them your life story, 
But I think you can take this as a pretty good rubric as to whether or not somebody can be in your life is if you say, my husband assaulted multiple underage girls and also assaulted me. And they say, well, he told me you left him for a woman. So who's to say? I think that's going to be a pretty good rubric of whether or not someone can stay in your life. And so, again, not to say just like don't care who cares what he says. Of course, it's painful. But to whatever extent you can live your life in such a way that you're not being given information about things he says or does about you to consider him an untrustworthy, unsafe person who you do not want updates from, I think will be a good and a useful thing for you to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that question, I think, needs to be resolved before you can then start to think about the terms of coming out, because then I think you'll have a better sense of who you want to come out to and who you want to share your partner with and to, you know, to have that that personal and hopefully positive conversation. And also just in terms of disclosing the abuse, I mean, I think that, you know, the letter writer should should do that, you know, in her own terms. And of course, um, she'll have considered this, but, you know, in terms of disclosing other people's stories. But also what struck me is, you know, if he lied to you about the arrest, like it's on his public record. Um, right. And, you know, so it's it's not just your word against his. Right. And I think that's also helpful because I want to clarify too, I don't think the letter writer needs to disclose that he abused you if you want to simply come out to people. Like, please don't feel like you have to say, well, he was also abusive towards me and these other people if if what you only want someone to know is that you are bisexual and dating a woman. And if if you believe that person has heard from your husband that you left her, or sorry, that you left him for her, you can correct that without feeling like you have to bring up the abuse. That is not something you have to give to people in order to ask them to believe you. And I think the last thing that I will say there is it, it, it may not be possible for you to kind of coordinate anything between... Um, his other victims, but I hope that you and these other girls are aware of all the options available to you up to and including legal ones when it comes to bringing him to account for his assault and abuse. Absolutely. Your community's response is not your only recourse here. And I'm so glad that you're with someone lovely now and that you don't have to talk to this guy ever again. And congratulations on having a great girlfriend. She sounds great. All right, let's move on to a, a slightly more strange rather than like deeply, deeply painful um, series of lies. The subject of this next letter is just, yeah, my childhood friend is a fraud. By the way, I've never read the um, Neapolitan novels. Is this the plot of one of them? Yeah, definitely. I forget which one, but 100%. I was like, I have read this somewhere. I should really read Elena Ferrante if only to recognize Elena Ferrante plots in the letters. So, my childhood friend is a fraud. Dear Prudence, my best friend growing up, Rena, was in many ways my twin. We had extremely privileged childhoods, financially, emotionally, and otherwise. We had access to anything we ever wanted, and our community was one of the wealthiest in the United States. We lost touch in high school and went our separate ways. We are now in our 40s, and I recently stumbled upon the website of the nonprofit she now leads, right there, front and center. On the About Us page is a sob story about Rena's upbringing. She claims she grew up in deep poverty and lacked food, clothing, and other necessities. Rena is actively using this information to solicit money for her nonprofit and show her employees that she identifies with their background. I actually know one of her employees, and that person did, in fact, grow up in poverty. My mom told me that Rena is now estranged from her family. It's unlikely that Rena's family members even know this is going on, much less would feel comfortable coming out of the woodwork to call her out on it. What is my role here? I feel sick that Rena is persuading donors using lies, and even worse, she could ultimately get discovered and have it reflect negatively on the very noble work her nonprofit does. What should I do? Ooh, this, I would read this novel. <laughs> Absolutely. Um... I, I think I have a pretty straightforward answer to this. Maybe you can hit me with it. Disagree with me. I'm kind of like I don't think this is your problem. Uh, I I think you haven't seen this person in you know thirty ish years, and I, I think you know if there is a potential that Rena is using this story in a way that is actively harmful to people, then perhaps 
there is something there to explore. But I, I think there's some... I, I, I think there maybe is a, a wider question here about, you know, what kind of relationship do you want with her? Do you want a relationship with her? Um, I think you, you don't have to, uh, you know, lie if this employee of hers that you know, um, you know, if it comes up in conversation or something. But I also don't necessarily think you have to be involved unless it's causing harm. Yeah. I, I'm inclined to agree here. Um, mm. I think it would be one thing if the lies were directly connected to the way she was using those donations. And if you had direct evidence that she was embezzling money or misusing funds, that to me would feel like a pretty easy call. Whereas here, I think all you'd be able to say is, well, if she's willing to lie about that, then maybe she's willing to lie about other things. And so they should investigate her on those grounds, which I I can see someone saying that. I also feel like that is more speculative. I certainly don't see here like a slam dunk. You are obligated to say something. And if you don't, it's, you know, it's going to be on your head. Totally. So, yeah, I mean, I I agree. It doesn't seem like one of those cases where it's like, well, maybe you didn't really know what Rena's home life was like. And maybe they were doing worse than you thought. Like, my guess is you, you probably had a fairly accurate idea of what her family's uh, financial situation was. And she has mostly made up uh, growing up poor. I I think it's fine to say like, yeah, she seems to be lying about that. Um, If you were in current contact with her, yeah, I would, I would say you have a relationship now, bring it up, but she's a stranger to you. It's not a smoking gun that she's misusing or like misappropriating funds. If I were in your position, I would chalk this up as like, boy, that's weird. That's a weird lie. This would be a weird story that I'd be like, I'm going to bust this one out like between some friends and we can just discuss how bizarre this is. But I I don't think, I, I think if you had evidence that it was causing harm, that she was misappropriating funds, you know, that's one, that's one thing, but. Yeah, exactly. She's a stranger to you now. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I'd i be a little bit surprised if the only reason people were donating to her nonprofit, which you say does noble work, um, was because the you know current executive director claims to have grown up poor. Yeah. Um, that might certainly be part of how she uses her like personal story to um, get donations, but I don't think it's the only thing she does. And I also like... Without coming out like swinging against all nonprofits, I do think it's like this. This does not seem to me out of keeping with the kind of dysfunction that is common to nonprofits. This absolutely happens. Like, right? Like, this is not just Rena's problem. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a little bit of a sense of like, oh no, nonprofits are such noble, like impeccable, unimpeachable organizations, and she could bring down their good names when it's like. Nonprofits often have like a lot of overhead and have more to do with kind of dysfunctional ideas of being a compassionate person who can manipulate or use a personal image to control other people. Like they're not all um, perfect, charitable. I mean, charity is already like a, a, a difficult word to kind of work around. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, this to me feels very in keeping with like, I think a lot of nonprofits actually operate on the basis of lies and exaggerations on this level. Absolutely. Nonprofit and charity drama is like a very specific niche. But as somebody who works in LGBTQ healthcare stuff, so has to deal with a lot of nonprofit drama, let me tell you, it is mm-hmm. it is a rich tapestry. And yeah. And so sorry, not to say like I, I realize that could come across as like I have personal, <laughs> like firsthand information that like 80 nonprofit directors are currently lying about where they grew up or either that like, who gives a shit? You know, like they're all liars. I don't want to make it sound like no no big deal, but I think everybody, because you don't know this drafts that about page a very specific way. And yeah, I just don't see a a way. I, I don't see like something so big that you need to get involved. And I don't see, um, anything that's like imminently disastrous if you wanted to email her and say, I saw your About Us page and I think you're lying about your childhood, you can. And then you can, you know, spend a little time fighting with a stranger who used to be your friend. But you don't have to. Yeah. And um, 
if you don't have to and that doesn't sound like a lot of fun, go do something else with a clear conscience. Yeah, that's pretty bang on. The next one, by the way, set off like a dim memory. The was like Lonely Girl 15. Wasn't that like a MySpace scam or something at one point? Oh my God, yes. Wow, I haven't thought about that in like 15 years. It was like the first web series or something. Yeah, it was some something scam related. Was it like a Caroline Calloway prototype situation? I don't remember. I don't think it's the same as Caroline Calloway, who as best as I can understand is just a confessional writer. I don't think she's like... Um, pretended that something was uh, like a diary when it was in fact a scripted program. But I'm looking this up. It was like one of the first YouTube web series. Um, not, not one of the first, oh. but like an early one. And it was like supposedly like just somebody's like video diary and then it was scripted. And right. Apparently it had something to do with the occult and it was created by someone named Mesh Flinders. Okay, now I'm intrigued. So Yeah, I'm going to fall down a rabbit hole. Yep. I want you to read this letter because I'm ready. this is... All okay. I care about now. Okay, absolutely. Um, uh, I'm so happy that you picked a COVID question so we can all just, you know, sit with our quarantine. So subject is Lonely Girl 20s. Dear Prudence, I'm a single woman in my 20s. My roommate went home when we went into isolation, so I'm alone all day. Well, I've been calling friends as often as I can. I still find myself pretty lonely, which I'm not in my normal pre-COVID life. So I've taken to chatting with strangers on a random chat site. This is something I've never done before. While most of the guys on the site immediately ask for nudes or sexting, I've found I've made a few really strong temporary connections to men, which all expire after a few hours. The site times out and then you get thrown into the pool of strangers. But now I'm obsessively clicking through the site, looking for names I recognize, trying to find guys I feel like I've built a connection with. And in all honesty, I find it hot knowing I can get a guy all hot and bothered through words. Am I crazy? I want to stop using the site, but I spend more and more time on it every day. I'm worried that I'm building an unhealthy or worse, unsafe habit. I don't tell anyone my name or location, and I don't send pictures. I find it liberating to talk to men through a screen. And for the first time, I feel like I can really be myself, like guys find me sexy by what I say instead of how I look. It feels good to be wanted. But I'm conflicted, knowing I'm not really sharing myself at all. I guess it boils down to me worrying that I'm going to get addicted to the escapism of temporary connections. But I still emotionally crash when they disconnect and disappear. I just feel so lonely right now. Help. Oh. Yeah, I, I feel that this letter writer could be a lot easier on herself. Yeah, totally. I also, and I say this in a very loving way, I think I like laughed a little bit at this question just because um, as somebody who grew up as like a little gay trans boy on the early 2000s internet, um, can't relate. All of my friends, all of my first relationships <laughs> are all on weird chat sites and AOL chat rooms and weird corners of the trans internet that I'll someday write some kind of stupid memoir about. Um, so I look forward to reading that memoir. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a sort of worry and, and maybe lack of familiarity with with these kinds of relationships. But But let's get into it. So. Yeah, and, and I think that, that was really uh, key here because there's a lot of like, um, in addition to sort of like internet fear-mongering, mm. uh, a real sort of like, I'm isolated and alone and I like making connections with people. What's wrong with me? Um, is this some sort of like evil addiction I could get sucked into that I think can result when you attempt to deny or disavow like desire and pleasure? Like, it's fine if you want to say that you find it liberating. My read there was it's a little bit like trying to hide behind. If it's liberating or empowering, it's good. If I like it, that's not a sufficient reason to do it. Like, mm. I think I mean, maybe you truly do find it liberating. That's great. But I also just want to say like finding something liberating or empowering does not have to be a benchmark for getting a thrill out of it. Whether that's thrill be like sexual or parasexual or sexual adjacent, like it's also really okay for this not to be liberating um, yeah. or for it sometimes to feel liberating and sometimes not to feel that way. Like it's also just okay to say, I like making connections. I like flirting. I like talking to sexy men or like people I can picture as sexy men and imagining how they're getting really turned on by me. Like 
all of that sounds great and fine, like for its own sake. Yeah. Yeah. Would recommend even not in quarantine. Yeah. Yeah. So Um, I think this idea of like, I'm worried that I'm going to get addicted to it feels like another like fear of naming desire. Like because it would make me like a freak to like this, um, I need to use the language of addiction so that if I get embarrassed or scared, I can just claim I've become sexually addicted to something and now uh, I can just get rid of it or disavow it or call it shameful. And I really want to encourage this letter writer to think of it more in terms of this is something that I'm doing. I'm allowed to talk about it. It's not inherently shameful. Um, I'm allowed to have conflicted or different feelings about it day by day. And there's nothing weird or freaky about liking to flirt or to like to make connections, right? Yeah, yeah. And I do want to say like, you know, I I think this sense of unease and like of being worried about spending more and more time on these sites, you know, is something you could keep an eye on. I think this is one of these things where it's sort of balancing out giving yourself a break because we're in lockdown um, and, you know, allowing yourself to be open to something that it sounds like you haven't made a lot of space in your life for, perhaps. Um, and being and being attentive to, to your instincts as well. Um, I, I think perhaps if this thing of the... Um, you know, the the temporary connection that goes away is something that you're finding disturbing or embarrassing, you know, maybe look into that a little bit more. And I mean, the obvious thing is, is perhaps, you know, if you're making a connection with somebody, it's, you know, you can ask to add them on some kind of messenger or exchange a number or a username or an email address. Um, that's that's okay. You're allowed to do that. You don't have to wait until the site refreshes. Um, you know, and, and maybe also think about, I mean, it sounds like part of it for you is, is, you know, being on this kind of like sexy chat site. But, you know, you can also build virtual relationships with people through hobbies and interests and, you know, groups that aren't necessarily related to sex. Although I would encourage you to be living your best sexy life, you know, in lockdown and, and to be able to be okay with, with the pleasure that you're getting out of this. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope to like, to be clear too, I think it's really important to like openly and honestly avow like what you want and what you're doing. That said, it's also really okay to say like, I'm doing this a lot. It feels a little compulsive. I would like to do it less. That is also totally fine. I don't want to suggest that like you have to make this your number one uh, hobby and start going to parades for it. Um, So a couple of things. If you talk to somebody you really like and you want to know if they would like to talk elsewhere, you are probably, like unless it violates the actual rules of the site, you can certainly say like, would you ever like to chat on another format? And again, that doesn't mean you have to give them your address or your personal phone number. You can give them like your name on another chat service or ask for like a throwaway email account and like slowly build up intimacy there. You're allowed to do that. If you meet someone you'd like to talk to some more. Um, I also think you are behaving perfectly safely. If you are not, um, giving people, uh, your like at home information, uh, you're fine. I don't think you're being unsafe. Uh, and then, you know, beyond that, if you want to share with a friend or two and say like, some of this feels fun, some of it feels exciting, some of it feels scary, you can do that. You're allowed to talk about it with other people. Maybe write down occasionally like what you feel before or after you do this. You can kind of keep a track of like, oh, I tend to do this more when I'm like nervous or I tend to do this more when I'm bored. That's interesting. Do I detect a pattern there? Do I want to cut back or do I find that it really helps? And then just like beyond that, you know, the, the whole like knowing I'm not really sharing myself I guess I would just encourage you not to think of as intimacy intimacy is something that always requires like maximal personal knowledge. Like you are allowed to make short-term fleeting connections during a scary, isolated time in your life. You are allowed to flirt with somebody that you are not necessarily going to go on a date with. You're allowed to flirt with someone you don't really know. I think you already are perfectly aware that this is not the same thing as like a solid friendship with someone who's known you in person for five years. And as long as you're not totally um, uh, ignoring the other priorities and and people in your life in order to hyper fixate on this, I think you can give yourself permission to make some short-lived, in some ways, fantasy-based connections with other people. Totally. Get your life. And yeah, yeah. it doesn't all have to be like Sarah plain and tall. We're churning butter together and seeing into each other's souls. (laughs) 
<laughs> God. I mean, some people are into that, but, you know. Uh, like, I, I, and I do think, like, talking to your friends about it is, like, I, I want to give you permission to do that. This is not, a, like, very weird or abnormal thing that you're doing. Um, you know, it's okay to, and I think healthy to, to talk to your friends um, and maybe invite them, not, not into the chat room, per se, but, it, it, you know, invite them to, you know, to listen to you and to have you talked through some of your feelings about this? Because it's okay to talk to a friend about this stuff, too. And feel free not to bring it up with people who you think might be really judgmental about it. Um, but I hope you know at least a couple people who could respond to this with like, oh, interesting. How's that going? It's it's not as like unheard of as I think you think. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We get to move on to a nice short one. <laughs> okay. All right, let's go. Um, subject, staying up late. Dear Prudence, I love to stay up late on the weekends and watch TV. Sometimes on Sundays, my boyfriend has to work even though I don't. And he insists, in all caps, that we go to bed together whenever he has to go to bed. I make his lunches for him, lift up his windshield wipers, anything I can do to make his mornings easier. How do I explain to him that I understand he needs some sleep, but I'm not ready for bed yet? Oh, my God. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the lifting up the windshield wipers really sent me over the edge, I have to say. What does that mean? Okay, look, as somebody who's raised in New England, um, it's actually really important when it snows, you have to, like, lift the windshield wipers so that you can get the snow off of the, the windshield of your car easier. Because otherwise oh, you're going to be digging through that ice. Because they're frozen to yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. This is, like, one of, one of my best life skills. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Wow. This is so oftentimes on this podcast, I come down very much on the side of like people need their sleep and to whatever extent you can within reason, help them get there. You should. This, I would say, falls outside of the within reason category. Uh, This is, you know, you don't say anything, letter writer, about like what your boyfriend does for you. So all I know is that you make this adult man's lunch for him. It sounds like five days a week lift up his windshield wipers, among other little errands that make his mornings easier. And um, a couple of times a month, you would like to go to bed later than him. And you need help explaining to him that that's allowed. So to me, this is like, sure, we could talk about how to have that conversation with him. Or you could break up with him. I mean, I'm fully on that. I really want the letter writer to get into a really compelling TV show um, with really long episodes. Like I'm thinking like The Sopranos or something. And just, you know, stay up all night watching watching your TV. That that I'd be okay with that. But also I think break up with him. This is this is a totally reasonable thing to compromise on. You know, uh, I think if you had mentioned a little bit more about, you know, if he has a particular sleeping condition or or if there's something that, you know. Right, or that maybe, the noise bothers him. Right, exactly. But it's the it's the needing to get in bed together at the same time um, that, you know, I, I, I'm at a loss. Yeah, and I think that the letter writer would have mentioned if it was like he's otherwise really considerate and he always makes dinner for me or something like I think the reason that this was a short letter that said, here's this thing my boyfriend insists I do. Here's all the stuff I do for him. How do I, you know, convince him to let me have this one thing? I think you included that because this is a relationship where there is not a lot of mutual support. It goes one way and you're realizing that you're asking for something pretty minimal, which is once a week, not even that often to sometimes go to bed later than him, assuming you're also going like getting into bed relatively quietly and not like waking him up. Um, this this sounds like a real Bummer. And again, not that like everything in a relationship has to be perfectly accounted for and constantly 50-50, but like you're doing all this stuff for him and uh, you don't say anything about reciprocity. I, I just think this is one of those situations where you are dating an inconsiderate person and the problem is not that you have failed to explain that sometimes you like to watch TV. The problem is that he's like, great, thanks for the lunch. 
and feels no like compulsion to do anything in return for you. And that sounds like a shame. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that's my take. If this man does not lift his own windshield wipers, you know, like, and, or, or do the equivalent for you, I don't know what that would be, like salting mm-hmm. the driveway, then, you know, I, I think the answer is clear. <laughs> yeah, when you're at the stage of like, mentally listing through all the things you do for your partner and like pointedly not saying anything that they do for you because they don't do anything for you. Like it's bigger than the Sunday night TV thing. I don't think if you were to get your way in this, you would suddenly feel like things are great between us now. I think you'd feel a little bit of a sense of like, well, the problem still exists. So this last one I saved special for you. Just for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It, I, Obviously, I I feel for this letter writer tremendously. I also truly cannot for the life of me remember which one of us just read that very short letter. Uh, I think it was was me. I remember reading it dramatically. So this is all you. Great. I will do my best not to read this one dramatically. I'll just read it as is. The subject is healing after growing up with, quote, lesbian flight brand transphobes. Dear Prudence, I spent my formative pre-transition years in an online community that was entirely structured around getting transmasculine people to detransition. The people in it were mostly only a few years older than me. They were callous and self-centered, and they saw what they were doing as preventing the, quote, inevitable trend of lesbian flight. I am still close to several other non-binary transmasculine people who have entirely socially detransitioned. And though I got out of that toxic space, I still have incredible anxiety around taking HRT. I'm currently microdosing via gel, but I can't stop thinking about the ways they said I'd, quote, ruin my body. Every time I even slightly dislike a change that tea brings, I panic that they were right. Is there any way to keep this panic at bay? Or is it just a question of building up a tolerance to it? Ooh. Okay. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I'm going to answer first because I'm going to pull my, like, elder trans privilege here. Please. Okay. So I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for somebody who has spent some really formative years uh, thinking about their gender and sexuality in a space with people like this. Um, but I, I think really maybe more urgently than, than addressing that trauma is, is, is asking, do you have other trans friends? Um, and what, uh, where, where else is the trans community in your life? Um, not that like having trans friends, like, you know, fixes the, the trauma of growing up, uh, around that kind of agenda and politics, um, and really controlling attitude towards your body. But I really think that you, you don't say anything about the other people in your life, who are who are having a similar experience to you. You talk about other non-binary transmasculine people who have entirely socially detransitioned, but what about the people who are socially and medically transitioning in a way that is similar to you? I, I, I think that to me is is what's missing in this letter, and maybe those people exist, but I would really, really recommend starting to to craft a new narrative for yourself by aligning yourself with with people who are like you, um, even if it's not people you're meeting personally, but people who, you know, something about their gender expression or or their story resonates with you, you know, in, even in, in fiction or, or in the news. And, you know, just starting there to kind of not just think about it, about like building up a tolerance to trauma, but like about you know, building a positive relationship with with your body and and your history. Yeah, yeah, I, I so hear that. And I think that that is something that can prove deeply useful and healing over time. And to that end, I would also recommend, again, not that you can just like go like hang out a shingle tomorrow that says, I'm looking for nine trans friends to heal my trauma by the end of the week. <laughs> so much as just like, who are people whose relation to their own transition looks peaceful, open-minded, loving, complex, rich, deep, et cetera. You know, where are those people? How can you seek them out? And to that end, I think too, it it might really help to expand your trans community to include trans feminine people and trans women. Um, 
because I think one of the things you might be feeling right now is a sense of really still the only people in your life who have any kind of connection to transition are like AFAB people who have socially detransitioned. So there might still just be this kind of sense of the only people I see who have any relationship to transness are some like people who fall within the category of what TERFs would call like people for whom transition is a threat. And so it might really, really help. And again, I don't say like, go like call up the first trans woman that you meet and say like, can you heal my trauma? Um, Definitely like the same rules apply to any kind of friendships, which are like seek out people who have other interests that you share um, or who seem to enjoy your company. But even if it's just attempting to read more from from people who aren't um, kind of along the continuum of what you've seen a lot of, I think that will be helpful to you. When it comes to, sometimes I don't like things that T does to my body. And I'll assume you have a strong sense there of what T can do versus just like the problem of being a person in a body or getting older or whatever else. You know, what do I do with that information? Um, I, I, I don't have a lot of great advice for that other than pay attention to it, be gentle with yourself, investigate it. And if you feel like you need more help, talk to a therapist. And and I say that not to say like kind of like good luck, but I think in the sense of like if you were to either like steamroll over your own uncertainties or doubts because you feel like I need to do this to get back at those people, that would be a bad outcome for you. And if you felt like every time you felt a little freaked out by something new, that this meant you didn't really know your own mind and couldn't be trusted to make your own decisions about your own medical decisions, that would be a bad outcome too. So Basically, I would say in those moments, seek more information, investigate your own feelings, write down as often as you can what you're feeling in those moments, remind yourself that you are allowed to stop, to slow down, to speed up, to increase your dose as long as you're doing so, you know, while in conversation with whatever medical professional you've been working with to get your hormones, yeah. you get to make those choices. So there's there's real I think sometimes it can be very scary to admit that to yourself because it can kind of feel like, well, if I do something I later change my mind about or quote unquote fuck up, then I'll just have to hate myself. Um, And it's this sort of like desire to get rid of the problem of having to make choices around your own life by saying like, well, maybe they were right. So I'll just let them make that decision for me. Does that make sense? 100%. Yeah. I mean, and maybe I do have a little more specific advice uh, with like to follow up on that. Mm-hmm. Which is, well, uh, first, absolutely meet more trans women. You know, I think trans masculine people in general can benefit from having trans women in their lives more. And sorry, not to say that as like trans women are just like a good thing to collect because they'll make you a better person. I just genuinely mean that's a part of your community. And and there's real ways that you can offer one another support, solidarity, pleasure, friendship, love and affirmation and and that's worth seeking out as long as you don't instrumentalize people in so doing. Yeah. Sorry, that's my last interruption. No, 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 it's fine. It, it sounds like this person is pretty early in their medical transition because a lot of changes are happening. Um, and I want to encourage you as you're doing some of the things, self-reflective things that, that Danny really usefully talked about, make sure that you know, because this language of like ruin your body and, and you know, maybe disliking some of the changes that happen with tea um, is one, it's it's not an uncommon worry, even if you didn't grow up um, with a bunch of detransitioners, lesbian flight type people. But also bear in mind that when you're at this early stage of transition, there is a, a really powerful urge um, to compare yourself to other people um, in order just to see like if your changes are kind of on track, you know, totally normal impulse. And and I'd really encourage you again to, to look for people whose bodies are more like yours mm-hmm. when you're thinking about, you know, trying to get an idea of like how tea is changing you and or might change you. Um, you know, it's very easy when you're looking on like YouTube or Instagram to come up with this like, you know, hot, like two months on tea and yet like perfectly cis passing um, guy, you know, who's like extremely fit and ripped and everything. And like, that's not most people. Um, it's it's very totally normal, especially in the first year of HRT to, you know, have a whole range of stuff happening to your, to your body and if you're looking for something that is familiar and that might be a useful reference point to you, 
you know, I, I really encourage you to look at people on social media and in your community whose bodies are are more like yours. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's really useful. I think kind of the last thing I'll add to that, because I think we could probably spend a whole episode just on this. Um, the anxiety that you're feeling makes sense. Um, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean either that you should or should not continue to take tea at whatever level you're taking it. But among other things, this anxiety is not something that occurred in a vacuum. Um, it occurred as a result of not only the kind of general transphobia that we all grow up around, but about very specific attempts to flood you with as much transphobic rhetoric as possible. And so I would simply say to that end, your body is your body. It's the place that you live. It deserves, no matter what happens to it or to you, um, respect, care, and attention and love. That doesn't mean that you're obligated to feel good about your body 100% of the time or else you're a bad trans subject. But it does mean that even if changes happened to your body that you later wanted to futz around with, your body would not be ruined. A body can't be ruined. A body's a body. You might have painful reactions to parts of it. You might feel bad about it sometimes. It might not respond to things in the way that you would like it to. But that's not a ruined body. That's a body that's had some life happen on it. So in a practical sense, if you start to experience like hair loss on the top of your head and you feel self-conscious about it, there's two ways you can respond to that. One is talk to your doctor about finasteride or Rogaine um, or up to and including like hair transplants. Like there are a lot of things that people can do materially to react to losing hair on the top of their head. Um, and then there's also ways to process the feelings and the fears that come around like aging and attractiveness and the possibility of being attractive with less hair on the top of your head that everybody who lives in a body might have to encounter at some point. Um, if you start to grow beard hair and you feel like, I'm not sure I love this, you're allowed to consider laser hair removal or electrolysis. Like there are things that people can do to modify uh, the effects of testosterone on their body. You're allowed to have complicated feelings about it. You're allowed to decide you prefer some effects to others. Like um, you're not suddenly, uh, you know, I, I wish I could tell you there was a way to take tea so that it only did the things you wanted it to and not the things you don't. That doesn't exist yet. In the meantime, there are a number of things you can do to address particular issues that that exist purely on the sort of like cosmetic or physical realm. And then there are also ways to deal with both like privately, with a journal, with friends, with a trans support group, with a trans affirming therapist, um, fears that you might have about living in a body that changes that you can address without necessarily saying like, I'll change that too. Like you can both think about the options you have and also say, how do I sit with this fear? How do I love myself in this moment? How do I take care of my body as if it were something that mattered? Yeah. And in taking care of your body in that way, you are part of a range of trans and wider LGBTQ experience um, that exists. And, you know, you are, are, are part of a history of people who um, take ownership of their bodies in sometimes unusual but really affirming ways. And um, that's that's kind of cool, as a historian at least, I think it is. I love having a historian on the podcast. Sometimes I just drop it in there. I think it's lovely and I think it's great. And I just wish so much support and curiosity and tenderness to this letter writer who um, I think needs and deserves a lot of people in their corner who can let them know you're not the first person to do this. You're not the first person to feel this way. There's not some magical ruining threshold you're going to cross where before you were good and after it, you're irredeemable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And just in general, anyone who talks about your body as if it were some sort of like public resource that belongs to other people and that through your own exercising of autonomy, you can either ruin or safeguard where like your only two options are keep it up for other people or ruin it, that is a person who does not respect autonomy uh, or privacy or personal like self-determination. Oh, Danny, I want to write that one down. That's, mm, that was, that's, yeah, that's good. Yeah. 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 Your body's not a meadow in like England before the practice of enclosure. Absolutely. You know, sorry, that was like the most historian I could bring to this. I was going to say it is like not the Western Front, but you know, I'm a first world war historian and like we can do it back. 
learned about um, enclosure from those like horrible histories books. You did, of course. Yeah. You know, like well, the terrible tutors, the suffering stewards or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's how like I learned the accents that now get me made fun of at parties with English people. So I would never make fun of you at a party. Thanks. I just want you to know. Thanks. I love you. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Jack, thank you so much for being you. You are wonderful and perfect. Thank you, Danny. This was such a treat. You're fabulous. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your questions, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. You don't have to use your real name or location. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I, I understand both that the way that Olivia told you, great, stay in the kids' lives until she met a new boyfriend. Now don't. That was painful. That was unfair. That was hurtful. That was bewildering to her kids. It was a bad move. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah, I agree. Part of the trouble with any kind of custody disagreements, even if it's with somebody who doesn't have any like legal claims to the kids is another adult's bad behavior doesn't mean you get to lash out because it's not the kid's fault and they don't understand or it doesn't help them to hear like, well, she started it. Like, all they know is that they're getting hurt additionally. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.